What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I am thrilled to have with me today a very impressive professor of pediatrics from Johns Hopkins who is an infectious disease specialist and I've been wanting to do this episode for a long time on COVID in kids but have not managed to get around to it. And so today we are going to do it. And I have with me Dr. Anna Six Samuels. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics at Johns Hopkins and an associate hospital epidemiologist in the Department of Hospital Epidemiology and Infection Control here at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. She actually was a med student here at Hopkins and then did an MPH while she was doing her medical school here at the Bloomberg School. She went to Pittsburgh for residency, then she came back to Hopkins for her ID fellowship and stayed on faculty. And she, her research focuses on the development of effective strategies to prevent healthcare-associated infections in children. She also has been a mainstay of the support for the response to COVID-19 here at the Johns Hopkins Hospital and definitely on the side of uh, caring for children. So she really is an expert in this area. I'm thrilled that I could convince her to come on the show. Anna, thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure, Jed. Thank you for inviting me and excited to speak with everyone um, about COVID and kids because uh, we actually get lots of questions and so hopefully we'll be able to answer some of yours. I love it. And yes, we've, you know, we've done episodes on adults and, and I love that I actually, this impetus came from some of my residents who were saying, what about the kids? And, uh, and so I, I think this is really um, long overdue. So um, I, I mentioned uh, that your area of focus prior to COVID was in the um, uh, looking at and trying to prevent healthcare associated infections in kids. Was that a natural kind of morph into COVID care? Um, what, what kind of, was it, was it uh, well, hey, everybody's um, obviously needs to help out with COVID or did your research and, and interest kind of dovetail directly into helping out with COVID? Yeah, so it certainly um, was linked. I have a background um, doing epidemiology research and I've, you know, had internships, for example, with the CDC. And actually when I was uh, almost 10 years ago, um, helped do surveillance uh, for influenza during the H1N1 pandemic um, in Kenya at the time. And so um, though most of my research and day-to-day activities might focus on, you know, the children physically in our hospital and how can we uh, prevent and improve their care, um, a lot of what we do in infection control is directly intertwined with emerging or re-emerging infections, many of them are viral infections. So for example, a few years ago, we had a measles outbreak nationally, um, and that definitely impacted us locally as well. So there's this nice overlay of both um, kind of issues outside and worldwide, and then also how they directly affect our patients. And so that's where um, the area of hospital epidemiology comes in that we're epidemiologists to also focus on the patients within our walls. 
Great. And obviously, you know, what what more pressing issue to come up than COVID? And and so, um, you know, I, I'm grateful, as I'm sure many are, that you were here and involved in it. So let's go back to the kind of winter and spring of 2020. Uh, the first wave of COVID, at least here in this country, was taking hold. We certainly saw quite a, a major influx of COVID patients, at least into our adult ICUs. Um, and I'm interested to hear from you what was happening in the pediatrics world at the time? It was clearly different. I know, for example, that we turned part of our PICU actually into an adult unit because there were so many adults with COVID. And obviously, right. we wouldn't have done that if we were also full of kids with COVID. So what was different when, when the wave of, of adults with critical illness from COVID was happening? How were kids different? So great question. When the pandemic first started, we were really bracing ourselves for um, a distribution of infections that would affect pediatrics um, equally or in, perhaps in the younger age groups even more so. So the, the best experience we had similar to this was, like I mentioned, the influenza pandemic that really did affect younger kids. So as it unfolded, in a way, we were presently, excuse me, pleasantly surprised that it wasn't affecting children in the same way. And so this was a little bit of a surprise at the beginning of the pandemic and maybe not what we initially anticipated. What we were seeing was really those older adults, um, elderly folks, uh, the, the 80 and 90 year olds that were truly getting um, really significant illness uh, while the young people, less than 20 year olds were a really small proportion of cases. Um, and so that did allow the opportunity to help support our adult uh, colleagues in the adult hospital and offering some space and staff um, to support those adults in our area as well. Yeah, and and believe me, as a, an adult ICU doctor, we were very grateful. So um, what do we think, What was the issue, do we know that there were fewer kids getting infected or was it just that there were fewer kids getting severe disease to the point where they needed to come into the hospital or even to the ICU? So great question. Early in the pandemic, we really were testing was a limited resource. And so we were focusing on testing the individuals that seemed highest risk or those with obvious symptoms. And actually, even then, um, we weren't even testing any children for quite a while into the pandemic. So technically, we have no good data from our local experience on how many kids were actually getting infected. Now, what we've learned over time is that it, what it appears is that the um, children, the rates of COVID in children kind of go in parallel with the rates of COVID in older ages. So now that we're doing testing more commonly across all age groups, there's kids getting asymptomatic tests before procedures and things like that, we are seeing that they, really the rates kind of go in parallel. So kids do get COVID. Um, but maybe not to the same frequency as older adults. Okay. So not as much, but they do get it. And uh, do we think it's accurate to say when they get it, they're less likely to get a severe infection? Absolutely. So children are less likely to get a severe infection than adults. Uh, so for reasons that we're still learning about and don't very well understand, um, children, young children, particularly those younger than teenagers, so we're talking school age, preschool, babies, um, 
those children who are exposed to other people with COVID might be less likely to get infected and might be less likely to exhibit symptoms. They're more likely to have mild symptoms. Now, of the symptoms in kids, they basically are very similar to those in adults. Fever, cough are the most common symptoms, runny nose, sore throat. Um, so when kids get COVID, they tend to get similar types of kind of viral upper respiratory tract symptoms. Now, the difference is fewer children progress to get more of that lower tract disease where they're really um, developing an oxygen requirement and um, needing hospital support. So that is seen um, less commonly in children. Okay. Now, you said that we don't fully know why. Uh, and I remember hearing, you know, again, back in the spring that maybe kids had fewer ACE2 receptors uh, compared to adults. And that was part of why maybe they didn't get it as, as much or as severely. Is that, does that panned out or, or we don't know? Um, to be honest, I, I don't know that it's an obvious um, like slam dunk association, but that's definitely one of the hypotheses that's still being investigated. Um, and I think there's, there's potentially also just differences in the immune response that they might get a mild kind of transient infection without the secondary cascades that cause the tissue damage. And there's also yet another um, hypothesis that because of the kind of range of viruses that young kids tend to be exposed to, perhaps they were entering into the pandemic with some immune benefits compared to older age groups. Um, so there's a range of hypotheses. I think given the very strong epi data that children seem to get less and have more mild infections, there's some biologic differences that explain this. Um, so we'll probably learn more with time. Okay. Now I, I'm curious about this. My wife is a pediatrician and uh, she and her, her fellow, um, you know, friends from residency were, were chatting and wondering if um, there is any, uh, any data to suggest that pediatricians are less likely to get severe infection, sort of for the same reason you mentioned with kids, pediatricians obviously are more likely to have been exposed to lots of, of infections they get from their kids, right? So, you know, I think the classic, and you probably had this too, right? Your intern year as a pediatrics intern, you're just sick all the time because you're exposed to kids with illnesses just all the time, but then it, it doesn't continue that way because you must build up some sort of immunity. Is there anything to suggest? Has anybody looked at this that maybe pediatricians are are uh, are a little bit a little have a little better immunity? So I have not seen anyone look at that question in particular. I think that's a, an interesting uh, hypothesis. To be honest, though, what we've seen is um, healthcare workers are more likely to get COVID from contacts outside of. Um, their patients. So either being around other colleagues without masks on during breaks or um, other social events or household contacts they have outside of work. So even so, um, you know, some healthcare workers might get COVID from, um, from patients occasionally, but it's, it's far less than the number of cases that happen from other types of contacts. Yeah, absolutely. Which is a great public service message to the healthcare providers out there that we should be really careful outside of work um, because it's not actually at work that we're most probably at risk. Right. Um, so is it is there any relationship between the fact that kids um, 
are less likely to get severe disease and the risk of them passing it on? Do we know that? Uh, are they any more or less likely to pass COVID on if they have it to, to others? So that's a great question and one that's still, I think, being investigated and we don't really know. Uh, I, I, I want to say I, ha I haven't been completely convinced in one direction or another yet. Um, I think it's, I, we certainly have plenty of uh, case reports and examples of children who were infected and did pass it on to others. Um, and so, yes, that's definitely possible. Um, it's not clear whether it's just that if a kid is exposed, they're less likely to get infected and therefore also less likely to pass it on rather than if they actually are infected, maybe they are just as likely to pass it on. So that's the part that we don't have a clear understanding yet. Okay. Let's talk about multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. I think, is that MISC? Yes, MISC. So multi-system inflammatory um, syndrome in children. This is, um, this was the unpleasant surprise of the COVID pandemic in pediatrics. So we, you know, the pandemic was rolling along and through the spring, we were all feeling a little bit of relief that children were being spared as compared to older adults. And then we started seeing these patients come in. They didn't even know they had COVID. They never had any prior symptoms and they were severely ill. Um, they were presenting with myocarditis, um, cardiovascular collapse, hypotension, needing vasopressors, um, really ill, ill kids. And, um, and then, you know, the data accumulated from Europe, from the US, and we realized as a community, when I say we, as a medical community, that there was a, a new entity we were dealing with, which was this post-inflammatory condition. So our understanding of this condition is that, yes, it, it's definitely triggered by a COVID infection. And it's a, there is some aberrant response, um, immune response, uh, due to the infection that then causes this inflammatory syndrome. Now, when it first started, there was a lot of um, overlap with what we call Kawasaki's disease. So Kawasaki's disease is also thought to be likely a kind of post-exposure, post-virus something inflammatory syndrome. There's a lot of potential different triggers that have been identified. Um, and it also causes potentially coronary artery dilatation, high fevers, high inflammation, um, and there's a subset of Kawasaki's disease that would present with uh, cardiovascular collapse and shock. And so people were drawing a parallel between MISC and Kawasaki's disease. Now, as, as time has gone on, you know, I think more and more we're beginning to think that these are separate entities and that the COVID triggered MISC is perhaps really its own thing. Um, there's more overlap with Kawasaki's disease and MISC in uh, slightly younger kids. So they tend to kind of have the same type of symptoms, fever, rash, red eyes, um, and they might be a little less likely to have the severe uh, cardiac uh, findings than children more into the school age. So that's where I would say that the line is a little more blurred in the youngest kids, but as they enter school age, MISC really does seem to be a distinct entity. Okay. This is, this is really, you know, obviously a scary thing. So especially because as you said, 
uh, a lot of times these kids never knew they had COVID, right? So it's not like they had COVID and then we're looking out for this. It's just comes seems to come out of nowhere. And do we know they had COVID because when these kids come in, we're doing antibody testing or how do, how do we know? Yeah, great question. That's exactly how we know. So one is part of the definition for MISC. Um, it's, you know, a fever with two or more organ systems um, involved and the uh, child needs to have either PCR antibody positive or known exposure to COVID in the past four weeks. Um, and most of the patients overall had antibody positivity. Okay. Now you said two or more systems. Uh, cardiovascular is that the most common? Cardiovascular and GI are the most common. So the most, I would say the most common kind of presentation is um, a child who starts not feeling well, complains of belly pain, might have some vomiting, diarrhea, the belly pain gets worse, they get a fever, and then more things start going wrong. They start getting headaches, they feel more malaise, more tired, the belly pain gets worse, things just keep getting worse. Um, and then when they come in, uh, we actually have you know, kind of like a triage algorithm to help identify um, which patient should get a kind of set of screening labs um, and maybe move on to the, the cardiac studies. Um, and so, yes, it's actually, it's not just fever, but it's fever and belly symptoms that um, should raise the flag for MISC. Okay. And do we have any idea what's going on? I mean, you said an immune response. Is it kind of um, like uh, an autoimmune, you know, is, is there something we think about COVID that is causing antibodies, which are then attacking the endovascular lining of, you know, the blood vessels and the heart? I mean, what, what do we, or do we just not know yet? Um, so I think that that's certainly possible because our, our mainstay of treatment for MASC is um, intravenous immunoglobulin. So just pulled immunoglobulin um, is very effective in reversing the, the trend and um, that often coupled with steroids, so dampening the immune response overall, um, really is the mainstay of treatment for this condition. And so, yeah, I think that I think there's a lot to be learned still about the pathophysiology, um, and I imagine we'll learn a lot more in the next year as uh, researchers have a chance to really get into the details of what's going on in a cellular level. Uh, but I think it is just as you said. The, the virus triggers an immune response with potentially an antibody response that's uh, destructive to our own tissue. Okay. So do we have any feel for, you know, uh, what the risk is of this? I mean, if you have a thousand kids exposed to COVID, how many are going to get uh, or be at risk for this? Great question. Um, so obviously we don't exactly know because so many kids seem to be asymptomatic with their COVID infection. But overall, the estimates um, all are less than 1%. So maybe even somewhere around 0.1%. Um, and that's obviously a pretty big estimate with a, a wide confidence interval, I'm sure. Uh, but that's our, the general estimates that um, some people have put forward. And I think that the benchmark for me that's easy to communicate to others is less than 1%. Okay. And then of the kids who have it, um, what do we know about the outcomes? You said IVIG and steroids are pretty effective. Do we have a feel for what the sort of a full recovery rate is? Is it, is it very good? Is it, is it not great? And is there a, I mean, is, is mortality a risk here? And if so, what's the mortality rate? 
So unfortunately, we are seeing some children uh, pass away from MISC, and those children and, and, uh, might be those that progress very quickly um, and therefore are really too advanced by the time they even present to care um, to reverse uh, the damage. Uh, once if children are presenting and kind of within that, what seems to be that window of, of treatment opportunity, yes, they reverse uh, with treatment, with IVIG, with steroids, most children turn around and really within a few days are um, nearing their baseline. So it's pretty remarkable to see these patients go from being so severely ill to really recovering uh, essentially back to their baselines. Um, so I think for, for most children, the take home is with prompt treatment um, and supportive care. This is a reversible condition um, as long as it hasn't so rapidly progressed that we, we miss that window of opportunity to treat them. Okay. So there, it is possible to have uh, this be a fatal disease, but um, we have pretty good tools and it's pretty low risk. Um, and uh, now the, I'm guessing that there's no, when you, when we're talking about IVIG, we're not talking about um, COVID, uh, you know, plasma from someone, convalescent plasma, right? We're talking about the same IVIG that would be given for someone who has another indication for it, because this isn't the infection anymore, right? This is, we think a, a reaction to the infection. So there's no, you can't, you're not treating the virus, right? You're treating the exactly. We're treating a reaction to it. So just like you said, we're not treating the virus. Now, I will say sometimes there's some overlap. Um, and so occasionally there can be patients who do have symptoms from their acute COVID infection and then might even kind of morph into what seems like MISC over time. Um, and so sometimes when patients present, if their PCRs are positive and if they have evidence of respiratory or lung disease, then we might say, you know what, we're not sure what's the, what's the predominant um, issue right now. And so sometimes we might treat a patient for acute infection as well. Okay. But it's more based on their, their lung disease. There's a phenomenon out there called COVID toes, right? Um, that I, I think is something essentially like swollen, irritated, erythematous toes, maybe fingers too, I, I don't know. But that, um, is this related? I mean, is this a manifestation of MISC, of COVID? Um, is it just a rumor and not a real thing? Great question. So COVID toes is a thing. Um, I, I do believe it's a thing. Um, and what it is, it, what I, as my understanding, and excuse me, because I'm not a dermatologist, but it is a similarly a post-infectious uh, phenomenon where it's not really the active infection causing this rash, but because you had COVID, you then develop some kind of aberrant immune response that presents with this rash um, and causes these, you know, chalavian-like lesions of the toes. Um, and this is not the only post-infectious issue that we've now begun to learn about with COVID. So I think for some reason, COVID has some um, immune-stimulating effect that is leading to all kinds of post-infectious um, issues. Um, another group of issues that is coming up um, is actually like neurologic symptoms. Um, I've heard about uh, people getting like iritis even. Um, and all of this is weeks after their initial infection. 
Um, and so I think, you know, as things go on and certainly for the, the issues that are a little bit more rare and therefore a little bit harder to get that data together about pe different patients, um, we'll learn more about all the potential post-infectious complications of COVID. Okay. Do you, would you, if you were a community pediatrician and a kid came in with COVID toes, would that make you worry about MISC or no? You think those are just distinct phenomena? I think they're distinct Okay. Yeah. Um, great. All right. So um, now let's kind of look at, uh, we, we kind of started looking back last spring uh, and have things changed now in what we might call the second or even third wave, whatever it is that we're seeing now, which, which actually may have crested and maybe heading down, let's hope. But um, I'm under the impression, which may or may not be accurate, that we were starting to see more kids um, with, with sort of severe COVID illness this time around compared to last spring. Is that true? And if so, do we know why? Um, so to be honest, I don't know if it's 100% clear that it's true. Um, like I said, the cases of COVID in children go in parallel with the rest of the population. So over the, you know, Christmas or mid-January wave, there's just so many people that got infected with COVID in our community that I think we just also saw that reflect in children. And there are that proportion that are going to develop symptoms, lower tract disease, need to be hospitalized. Um, so I don't know if it's a reflection of just the sheer volume, a number of cases that happened, or if something is actually shifting. And I think, you know, probably over the next one to two months um, will help us understand that difference. Okay. Adults who end up with severe COVID and are intubated in an ICU have quite poor outcomes um, with a relatively high mortality rate. Is that also true in kids who are admitted to the PICU and intubated with COVID? Um, I imagine a part of what happens with adults is they have comorbidities that a lot of kids don't have. So maybe they do better, but uh, do we know? Is it is it um, not quite as bad for kids? So the numbers are just so much lower. Uh, I think that it's hard to tease out. And um, to be honest, I don't know that I've read something just re like more with more recent data about severe uh, COVID infection in children and outcomes. I imagine there's some similarities that those, and certainly the data has previously shown that um, even children with more comorbidities are also more likely to be hospitalized with COVID. So I think the comorbidities do play a role um, in, in the severity of the whole course. Okay. Yeah. And as you said, there just aren't it's hard to hard to know for sure when there just aren't a lot of numbers. Um, and I guess we should be grateful there are not a lot of numbers. Yes. <laughs> um, so uh, there's been a lot of debate and still is a lot of debate about schools opening. Um, do we know if, um, I mean, what, what is the, from the medical side, do we think it's safe? Uh, I mean, I guess the argument is that um, a couple of things, right? The argument for opening schools is partly what we already discussed, which is maybe kids are less likely to get it and maybe even less likely to pass it on, but that's not for sure. So I guess the question is, do we think it's safe for schools to be open? Does it matter? Is there a difference between a you know five-year-old and a 18-year-old? Probably. Um, and what, you know, what are we as, as um, physicians, what is the kind of pediatric um, infectious disease world saying about the, um, the ideas behind opening schools uh, as soon as possible? Sure. So, you know, this becomes a, a risk-benefit discussion. Um, obviously, you know, our goal is to keep children and, and their teachers and staff 
safe. I think, you know, when you talk to a lot of pediatricians, there have been a lot of other safety concerns about children during this pandemic. So schools offer a lot of support and structure to children um, that helps also keep them safe. Um, so not only the benefit of learning uh, but and socialization, but also oftentimes meals, uh, structured support, allowing their parents to go to work and support their families. Um, and in the absence of school, a lot of other things have taken that place. Sometimes siblings are watching siblings um, so that parents can still go to work. Some kids just don't, might not eat for the day. Um, and the stress of all of it certainly is mounting on families as well. Um, and even if you have awesome support systems, the stress of the COVID pandemic, if you have children, is very palpable. So kind of with that in mind, you know, what, what do we think about schools? We want to open schools as soon as it's safe to do so. Um, and I think that would definitely be in the benefit for children. Things that impact that. Um, COVID rates in the community certainly impact it. So the lower the COVID rates in the whole community, the more safe going to school will be, both for teachers and students. Similarly, what's the, the support and resources that the school has to be able to conduct in-person school? So do they have resources to keep class sizes relatively small, to actually cohort students and not mix them as much? So in the event there's an outbreak, it might only affect that one class and not the entire school. Um, do they have the space to actually space desks out and teachers spaced from their kids so they're just not exactly on top of each other and actually have that six feet apart? Do they have the resources to um, support, you know, if they do have to have a school shut down to flip between in-person and virtual, for example, or things like that? So, um, you know, I think that's one of the biggest challenges, you know, do schools have the resources and there's such heterogeneity between schools with what resources are available to them. Some are able, were able to do this months ago, have been open and have been found to, it's been safe. Um, while in other settings, it might not, it might just not be as quote safe because they haven't had the support to make it so. Um, and so, yes, I do think in, in conclusion, and yes, I do think it can be done safely. And I think we should make it a priority for all our kids, um, regardless of where they're living. Great. What about the difference in age group? It, does it, if you, if you had to pick or if you had to say, do you think it's safer for, you know, the kind of five to eight year olds than it is for the 15 to 18 year olds in terms of this, what we talked about, like less risk of severe infection? Um. So I think that's a great question. Um, certainly, I don't know, no one has a magic age cutoff at this point, but it does seem like the youngest children, so the preschool age kids are perhaps at the lowest risk, if you will. Um, and then there's some gradient as children get older. And then really by the time they're 18 and 20, um, they're very able to get COVID and spread COVID as we see uh, in the college campuses, for example. Um, and so, there, there, there might be some gradient. There might also be some counterbalancing um, things as well. Ch young children are much less likely to wear masks properly or even be able to keep them on all day. Um, as children get older, they're more able to comply with those things. But then there's also the social dynamics. Um, sometimes as children get older, they might also feel 
um, like they have the ability to make those decisions for themselves and might not appreciate other people telling them that they need to wear a mask or need to do this. Um, and so I think there's kind of um, a back and forth here, but there's no magic line um, and it, it might be reasonable for all ages, it, again, if, if the uh, proper precautions can be in place to keep both students and the staff safe too. Yeah, that sounds great. You know, I just realized I didn't ask you this, but I'm curious. Um, what about babies like newborns? Do newborns, you know, let's say from new from birth to six months, I mean, real little babies, do they get COVID? And if so, do, do they get really sick? Great question. So they definitely can get COVID. Um, but they so where we know about this, so there's people have looked at what about babies born to moms with active COVID? Yeah. Um, and what we're seeing is most of them actually do very well. If they get COVID, um, sometimes they may get a fever and they, that will necessitate a admission uh, generally in roughly the first two months of life to make sure that it's not a serious bacterial infection. But if once they kind of recover from their fever and other things are ruled out, then they can go home and do well. There are, of course, some case reports of severe illness, even in neonates, um, but I think it's rare. Um, so overall, the babies, they can get it. Uh, they tend to do okay um, and recover uh, relatively uneventfully for most children. Okay. And how about breast milk? Is that a worry? Breastfeeding, if, you, if a mother has active COVID, is there any recommendation about whether or not to breastfeed a baby? Sure. So we, we definitely advocate for breastfeeding, even with moms who have COVID. Now, what we would say is to try to reduce the risk of transmitting to the baby. So we ask moms um, who are actively infected to wear masks, to wash their hands before breastfeeding their baby, um, and also generally try to keep their baby at some distance from them, not right up um, kind of in their breathing space um, uh, all the time until that that's 10 days has passed and they're less infectious. Okay, but not really a risk to pass it on through the breast milk. Not a risk to pass it on through the breast milk. It has been detected in breast milk, like the RNA has been detected, um, but it's not clear that uh, there have been any real cases transmitted by a breast milk. Okay, well, that's... It's, it's more likely just breathing on the baby. Yep, yep, okay. Um, all right, now I want to lastly talk about the vaccine. So obviously, uh, there's a huge push to get adults vaccinated. Um, uh, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that kids uh, are not being vaccinated. Are there plans for that to happen? I imagine there would probably need to be some trials in kids in order to determine if it's safe. Um, what are we looking at in that in that realm? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're all interested in children being vaccinated as well, because um, for many reasons, to prevent illness, to prevent MIC, and to hopefully prevent transmissions too. Um, so the... The big companies, yes, they are moving forward with lower age groups. So um, the two current uh, vaccines, um, and sorry, sometimes I say these backwards, but I think Pfizer is 16 years and Moderna is 18 years. I got them right. Um, and they will be moving on to the next age group, um, generally down to 12 years. So trying to cover all the adolescent age group um, and then from there, I think it's really a stepwise approach of going lower and lower. And there's a lot of questions about the vaccine in children. Um, 
one of the questions is, well, the vaccine seems pretty immunogenic in even older adults, you know, that with the second dose, a lot of people are getting fevers and not feeling well for a day or two. Kids' immune systems might be even more robust. So are they going to get even more symptoms? And is that something we need to keep in mind Mm. uh, before rolling this out wide scale? Or do they need a modified dose? Like they don't actually need such a high dose to get a good immune response. So those are going to be some of the questions that the vaccine companies are looking into. Um, do they need two doses? Is one enough? Uh, so I think that the studies are not only about the safety of it, but also just some of the mechanics of the immune response in a younger ages. Um, and then from there, it will they'll go into the youngest age groups. Um, and see where it goes. Okay, yeah, yeah. that's... Um... Well, definitely. I think all of us with kids will uh, will be watching that closely. Um, at, not to mention teachers and school districts. It, it's a big. It's a big deal. Um, so uh, that I think is um, the bulk of the questions I wanted to ask. Uh, Anna, anything that we didn't get to that you you think is important before we um, move on? So uh, you know, I think overall we've hit a lot of the big topics. Um, I would say the take home points are: yes, kids get COVID. Um, their infections may be more likely to be asymptomatic or just mild. Uh, and so sometimes that's deceiving, right? Because a kid with just a low-grade fever and a runny nose, you might not blink too hard about, um, but maybe that is COVID right now in this pandemic. Um, and so that's a challenge, is mild symptoms is actually a kind of challenge to identify. Um, we're fortunate that kids are less likely to be hospitalized, less likely to need ventilation, even if they do get COVID. Um, but about one in three of kids hospitalized end up going to the ICU and most of them have MISC. So for the clinicians listening, the symptoms to be aware of are in children are fever with abdominal symptoms, fever with belly pain, vomiting, diarrhea. They may or may not get a rash or conjunctivitis. Um, and then it's progressive. They're going to feel more and more ill. So if they're starting to get better, it's uh, unlikely that it's moving on to MASC. Uh, but if you have any of those concerns to not uh, hesitate in sending those kids into the ED for an evaluation, um, and it's kind of better to be proven wrong that it's not MASC than the other way around. And then we talked about transmission dynamics. Um, kids might be a little bit less likely to get COVID even if they're exposed, but they certainly still are able to transmit it. And we're still learning about the details of that across the age groups. Hopefully with um, prevention measures in place, schools will be able to slowly reopen, um, but schools will need resources to do that. And by resources, I just mean money and physical support. So things that we can do to advocate to get those resources to allow schools to open safely, to make sure teachers have what they need to be safe um, and do their jobs and stay healthy. Um, and similarly, to make sure vaccines can be accessible and available to those who are able to receive them um, will also help bring down the numbers and make school more attainable. And um, well, we're all still learning more about all these secondary responses that COVID can cause. Uh, so I think there might be a whole book chapter one day on all the secondary responses of, um, due to COVID and, uh, and for all of those folks interested in immunology and the interaction between, uh, infections and immune response, there's plenty of work to do. So thank you. 
Fantastic. Thank you for that wonderful summary. And thanks for uh, this, all this fantastic information. Let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations to the audience. Is there something, Anna, that you have been into lately, a book, a movie, a recipe, something you've been doing that you'd recommend the audience check out? All right, sure. So I have a three-year-old. Um, okay, now I'm going to talk about three-year-old things in COVID times. Um, <laughs> so we have tried to come up with fun ways to make bath time fun. Um, some of our favorites have been these magnetic fish and going fishing in the bathtub. Um, recently, we also um, went fishing for ice cubes. That was fun because they're slippery and hard to catch. Nice. Um, we also have tried these like uh, like ball pit plastic balls and dumping them all in the bathtub. Um, so if you have kids, those are some ideas. And then another thing we've liked doing recently is just finding new things to cook. So one of my favorite recent recipes has been these like chocolate crinkle fudge cookies. Um, and if there's a link to this, it's uh, on all recipes. And if you look for chocolate crinkle cookies uh, with white powdered sugar on the outside, they're really delicious. Ooh, yeah, we will put a link in the show notes for sure um, as I rush to make them. They sound delicious. <laughs> Um, I love the bath ideas too. And I'll tell you one of the things, so I also have a three-year-old and you know, one of the things that I dislike about bath time is, you know, all these toys in the bathtub and then they're all soaked and you have to leave them in there to dry. And they're still in there the next morning when you want to take a shower. Yeah. And so <laughs> I love the ice cube thing, right? Because it's also time limited. They, they're gone on their own. They melt. So, yeah, that's brilliant. Um, well, fantastic. My, my uh, shout out is actually going to be um, a podcast by the New York Times. It's called The Daily. I think a lot of people know it at this point. Um, it's really well done. Michael Barbaro is the host. And I'll tell you, my wife listened to this for a long time and kept telling me about it. And I kept not, just didn't have a place to fit it into my podcast lineup. So I resisted. And then I finally listened to a few and I was so impressed. Now I listen to it every day. They do a really nice job. It's about a 25 to 30 minute um, daily. Uh, they pick one topic, they go really in depth, and then they do a very brief, like, here's what else you need to know today and a couple other just kind of headlines. And it's pretty neat. And then the other nice thing is they do a Sunday read. And so each Sunday, they pick an article from either the New York Times Magazine or a longer article from the paper. And usually the author will actually read it. So they're reading their own article and they give you a little bit of the context. And I'll just tell a, a quick fun story, which is that uh, I was listening to the Sunday read from a few weeks, maybe a month ago. And it was about a woman named Mrs. T. Shower who lived in New York City after having had this just incredible kind of life after uh, being in a uh, concentration camp in the war. And it was, you may have seen this in the New York Times, she and another and a man were in um, a concentration camp during World War II together um, as, as inmates in the concentration camp, and they became lovers in the camp. And then after they were liberated, they got divided. They made plans to meet up, but never did. And then 70 years later in New York City, they actually reconnected. Wow. And so I'm listening to this. It's this incredible story. And, and I hear the name tea shower and New York City. And I realized, and this is such a crazy small world story, that this woman lived in my wife's apartment building. And my wife used to help her when she was, when my wife was a kid, she would help this woman with like, you know, her, her shopping and things. And, and then my, even after my wife went away to college, my, my mother-in-law helped this woman with her kind of activities of daily living 
through the end of her life. Wow. And it was the same woman that. from this story. It was completely, completely wild to hear. And it's an incredible story. So I highly recommend both the Daily Podcast and specifically this story about these two um, people from, from, I think it was Auschwitz um, concentration camp. And uh, their story is pretty incredible. That's a, that's a really a wild, small world experience. Did, did your um, wife and her mom know about this lady's history? They did. Well, so I, my wife knew a little bit. I mean, they definitely knew she'd been in the in the Holocaust and been in a concentration camp. I They didn't know, at least my wife didn't know about the connection to this man. Um, I think that my mother-in-law, when we brought it up and sent her the link and said, you got to listen to this, it's about Mrs. Tishauer, um, that uh, my mother-in-law said, oh yeah, you know, she used to tell me these stories from the war. But um, yeah, it was pretty incredible. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. Well, Anna, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. And if folks have questions, I get questions from all kinds of people all over the board. So, um, you know, it's certainly welcome your questions. Great. And we'll put your um, Twitter handle in there and people can can uh, tweet at you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Shed. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. That was fantastic. I have really wanted to do this episode for a while. I learned a ton. I hope you did too. Check out the website, ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Let us know what you thought. Leave a comment. What have you seen in your practice? And uh, you can also leave questions there, of course, for Dr. Sick Samuels. If you would like to join the conversation, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. There's also a Facebook group for ACRAC that you're welcome to join. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. If you'd prefer to make one-time donations or control them whenever you want, you can do that as well by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking for Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and are already patrons. We really appreciate it. Big thanks, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, who is our tech lead, to April Liu, who is our social media manager, and to Dr. Kimia Kashkuli, who helps out with some of the show notes. And, of course, our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Sick Samuels, I'm Jed Walpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.